0: Let's so open our Bibles this morning to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've entitled uh, the message this morning, The Last Days Religion. As um, um, we see so many things from f- so many different angles happening at the same time, we could just get totally sidetracked talking about what's happening in the Middle East or what's happening in China. Um, there are some people out there talking World War Three. That was a front page headline in the Beijing newspaper in China. Um, we have many nuclear submarines, but we have three very special nuclear submarines. And um, just several days ago, one of them, I think they call it the Seawolf or whatever, uh, was in international waters south of China, and it was rammed. And um, it doesn't take too much thinking to figure out who might be behind that. It's making its way to Guam as I speak, and um, they've come out and uh, in China and said, prepare for World War III. So we could talk about that for a while. But the only reason I bring it up is... Um, we are watching um, unfold before our eyes um, what the Bible calls the apostasy, the falling away of the church. And um, yet the Bible clearly tells it that there is going to be a one-world religion in the last days along with a one-world government. So primarily that's where we're headed this morning. And I just want to connect some dots, not, the reason I had Mary come up, because this one world religion uh, for the first three and a half years of the tribulation is going to be headquarters in Rome. And we'll get to that more towards the end of the study. And um, one of the main points of this morning is you've often hear me say for every New Testament teaching, there's an Old Testament picture and this will tie into our one world um, religion as we go through our study this morning let's look at the first three verses as an example of this in uh, first corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 3 to make our way up to our text (coughs) excuse me moreover brethren i do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. All right, with that, I would like you to turn to the book of Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16, picking it up in verses um, four and five, here we're told Of course, passing through the sea is in reference to um, Moses leading the children of Israel through um, the uh, the Red Sea. Um, I tried to watch the Ten Commandments last night. Um, I saw the first half an hour, and then I ate some food, and uh, one thing I found out that I can't eat, eat food and stay up and watch a movie. <laughs> I woke up as Charlton Heston is leading them through the Red Sea. That's a four hour movie. That's how long my nap was. <laughs> so they, this is meaningful to me. But it says after that, the whole congregation murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died at the hand of of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with, with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a quota every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. So here we're told in Corinthians that they all ate the same thing. And um, if you look at verses 15 through 18 in the same chapter, we read, so when the children of uh, the Lord again rained man down from heaven, so when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? That's what manna actually means. What is it? Uh, for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, well, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord had commanded. Let every man gather according to each one's needs. Some people eat more than others. Uh, for each person, according to the number of persons, and let each man Take for those who are in his tent. uh, And the children of Israel did so and gathered some more and some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing over and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. Now there was conditions with this. This had to be done on a daily basis. And um, if you decided you would go out and take enough for two days because you'd want to sleep in the next day, the Bible tells us that that second day's portion would have worms and it would rot. And that would happen um, every day if you tried to do that except one day and that was the Sabbath. On a Sabbath they were told to gather twice as much and it didn't breed worms and it didn't stink. We read here in verse 35 the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came into the inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the borders of the land of Cana. Now an omer is one tenth of an ephah. Now there's a spiritual application to this. Remember I said for every New Testament teaching, Old Testament picture? Go back with me to Uh, John chapter 6 in the New Testament. Draw your attention to verses um, 31 through 35. Referring to the manna in the wilderness, Jesus said, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am, now there's, Seven I am sayings in the Bible. And that I am is uh, the same word that came out of the burning bush when Moses said, well, if you're going to use me, who shall I say sent me? What's your name? And the voice from the bush said, tell them I am has sent you. So, there are seven I ams in the Gospel of John. This is one of them. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. But here is I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Inside every person, without exception, if you're not born again, there's an empty spot, it can't be satisfied. It can't be filled except with the true bread from heaven. Nothing. Nothing will satisfy. That's why I like that song so much, You Satisfy My Soul. Uh, Nothing really else can. And that's what Jesus is saying here. For every New Testament teaching, there's an Old Testament picture. Well, they ate manna for 40 years. And um, they complained about it because it was the same old same old, every every day. Let me make the application. Jesus said, eat of me. Uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from me. Lifespan of your Christian walk, let's say, is 40 years. What has God given to you to sustain you to make it from the time that you give your life to Christ until he either takes you home in death or at the rapture? The answer is the book that you're holding in your hand, the word of God. And it is to be eaten daily, not just on Sunday morning, not just on Wednesday night. This is your daily bread. And um, what I like to say is once you've had a taste of the real thing, And you see the pictures starting to come together for every New Testament teaching. I also like to say the deeper you go, the deeper it gets, and the more your faith is increased. How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by what? The word of God. And so God wants you to grow from a baby Christian to an adult Christian, from drinking milk to eating meat, but there's only one way, my friend, that's going to happen. And that is the word of God. And that's a good place for an amen. And so that's why we do what we do. And um, we do it in a chronological order from Genesis um, to Revelations. <laughs> that's all I'm going to get for, for getting away with that? Some, if you're new to the church, you would get that one. Ask somebody afterwards, they'll explain it to you. So we find here. Um, I want to go back to First Corinthians now, chapter ten. There's a guy I listened to on, on the radio. I won't tell you his name. Uh, he doesn't know the the Lord, and he says revelations every single time, and it just drives me through the roof. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. We made it to verse 3. Verse 4, we're going from the manna, but verse 4 says, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and encamped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod which you have struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you will strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the children of Israel. So they called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, is the Lord able to see us through this journey? Um, we don't have any water here, and so the instruction was, strike the rock. Well, we just read in 1 Corinthians ten four that that rock was Christ that followed them through the wilderness, and he was told to strike it. He did. Water came out. We're talking 2 million people. The Bible tells us it was about 600,000 and some men, but that was just the men. We're not counting the wives or the children. So we're estimating about 2 million people had to be fed and watered for 40 years. And now I'd like you to turn to Numbers chapter 20, looking at verses 7, and we'll read through 11. They're thirsty again. Numbers 20, verse 7 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. And thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, hear now, you rebels. In other words, he is upset with them. He's pretty much had it with their murmuring and their complaining. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand, and he struck the rock twice With his rod and water came out abundantly, God was gracious, and the congregation and the animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, he said, because you did not believe me to hallow me. Well, how did he not believe me to hallow me? Well, he told them the first time, speak to the rock, This time, or strike the rock. This time he says, all I want you to do is go talk to it. Just talk to the rock, and it'll bring forth the water. But Moses was ticked off, and he was angry. So he struck it twice instead of speaking to it. That's why the Lord says, you've not hallowed me. You did not do what I was asking you to do. Uh, In the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore, you shall not bring the congregation into the land which I have given them. Now, that might seem like a pretty harsh punishment, Um, leading them for 40 years and then now because of this incident here Moses won't be able to go into the promised land that he's been leading them for 40 years well again the volume of the book is really about Jesus and there's a picture here that's gonna get into I've been doing this as an introduction to our one world religion And this is where we're headed with this. And this is a very major part of understanding um, um, the teachings of this one world religion. Moses died on Mount Nebo, which is in Jordan. Jude tells us that Satan and Michael, their archangel, argued over the body of Moses. He could see it, but he could not enter into the promised land. If you're taking notes this morning, write down John 1, verse 17. And that verse tells us that the law came through Moses. That's where he got the Ten Commandments. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, Moses could not enter the land because it would destroy the picture. You can't come into God's presence by trying to keep the Old Testament law. Nobody can. So if Moses would have led them into God's promises, it wrecks the picture. Somebody else had to lead them in. That other person was Joshua. Otherwise known, the volume of the book is really Jesus. Jesus is grace and truth apart from works. Can I say that again? Grace and salvation is apart from anything that you can do to add to that equation. Either Jesus did it all or he didn't. Either he said it is finished and the job is done and you can enter into God's promises if you believe on him because he took your sin and my sin and that was placed upon Jesus giving us access. We are saved by faith through his grace. And it's one or the other. But if it's works, then it's works. If it's grace, then it's grace. Is everybody with me so far? So you can see where it wrecks the picture here. Um, Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And again, because I do say this quite often, for every New Testament teaching, there's a a reason that... um, it's there, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 now, tells us, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Well, what is Paul saying to the Corinthians? He said, the manna, the, um, um, the provision of water, trusting the Lord even in the most difficult of times when you see absolutely no way out. He said those things happened for you and I today. It says became our examples. A direct correlation between the manna being the word of God and Jesus being the water so that they murmured to the point where Moses, (laughs) he had had it with these guys, he said, Don't, don't murmur. Um, don't let me put it to you this way. Uh, Wednesday night, another Bible study. Oh, Sunday morning, I know where we're gonna be because I know where we left off last week. It's gonna be another Bible study again this morning. Murmur, 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 complain, complain, complain. And that's the idea. Except know this. This is what the Lord chose. He used those two pictures of the old testament. As an example, that we don't get caught up in complaining and say, "Well, can't we spice things up just a little bit more?" Um, you know, in Egypt we had the leeks and the onions, and it was a lot spicier. But if you go to Calvary Chapel, all you're really going to get is a Bible study, and they worship. And um, a lot of people have drifted, and instead of having Bible teachers, pastors. I believe that every pastor should be a teacher. That should go hand in hand, according to Ephesians chapter four. Instead, people are gravitating towards motivational type speakers. A lot of flash in the pan going on behind the stage. Eric and I had a great talk yesterday that um, um, we're so blessed to have the worship team that we have. And um, yeah, go ahead. do you know that uh, Eric came into my office yesterday and he says, you know, the one thing I can't handle is when uh, people say something good about the worship team or they clap. (laughs) True story, Eric is my witness. And I said, let me tell you what Chuck would say at this point because um, after the message, somebody would go up to Chuck and say, you know, Chuck, that was really a good Bible study. And uh, at one of the conferences he said, Just be gracious, say thank you, praise the Lord, and then forget about it because you had nothing to do with it. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. And so Eric and I are are talking about this, and um, I can tell you the one thing he does not want is the attention. And, And neither do I, but having said that, Chuck says make sure that you're gracious with the people that you're talking to. Say thank you but don't let it go to your head. Realize that you're nothing more than an instrument, and that's all you are, and that's all you'll ever be. The Bible calls us unprofitable servants. The Lord is just looking for people who are available, not talented. I mean, the Jesus movement was proof of that. All these uh, burnt-out, strung-out hippies that couldn't put two and two together, Uh, the Lord has raised up to be... um, Pastors over churches all over the world with thousands and thousands of people in it when they finally got a taste of the real thing. And when you get a taste of the real thing, and um, um, then again, not, nothing else can really satisfy a person's soul. So here we're clearly told that the rock and the manna and their complaining was for our example that we don't fall into the trap of, oh, another Bible study. Um, and uh, But rather, um, looking forward to it and get fed by it and um, not looking for something that might be a little bit more spicy. We call them today seeker-sensitive churches. In other words, designing the church the, what they might want instead of what should be taught and um, we call it there's, a, there's actually a term it's called laboring in the word everybody familiar with that verse where you labor in the word that's what you really dig in and you're actually laboring in it and you're um, going uh, deep down into the scriptures okay the background um the background of chapter 10 actually comes from chapter 8. So I'm going to have you turn back to chapter 8, 1 Corinthians, and look at verse 4. And we're talking about two different kinds of people here. Uh, people weak in the faith and people strong in the faith. So Paul says, therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other one but God. Now this, Paul, Paul says he knows that. But then there were those who were going to the market who were, remember we're in Corinth, very, very pagan society. They would have been offering meat to their idols and um, they didn't have enough spiritual meat on their bones to um, uh, have this freedom that an idol's nothing. Don't worry about it. Just eat it and be thankful. But then he goes on to explain, if you look at verse 13, if, um, well, let's go back to 12. Uh, let's go back to 11. Let's go back to Genesis 3. <laughs> verse 11. Now this would be the, the one who understands that an idol is nothing. And because of your knowledge of an idol's nothing, so don't worry about it. Shall the weaker brother perish, for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound his weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. So as we get into chapter 10, the background of, of this is... Um, Um, chapter 10, the subtitle here is Warning Against Forfeiting Our Our Liberties. Um, Some get it, and others didn't. And the ones that didn't get it, he says be careful that you don't stumble them. And if um, uh, you ask them over for supper and you're serving steaks that night, don't bring up the subject if this was offered to an idol or not. Just let it go, and don't, don't even bring it up. So our text, therefore, has to do with, um, actually has to do with a communion, making a Christian one in Christ. And that's where we read in, in our, our text earlier um, about uh, communion, and that would be the Lord's cup um, in our, uh, when we get to our when we get to our text. So the context of chapter 10 is really dealing with the subject of communion. Now follow me because I'm working up to something here. So the idea is that we would all be one in Christ in communion. And um, it, it's what causes really us to, to be one. Um, There's one major exception. If the idea of communion is that we're all one in Christ according to our text that we read together, um, then we have one exception to this where everybody understands what communion is. And there is one exception to that and to get more in depth, I need to have you turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll start to connect some dots here. Hebrews chapter 10 deals with one issue. If you're a Christian, many people call themselves Christians today. And if, if you're born again and we take communion, we are all one. We're part of the body of Christ. There's one exception to that rule. And the reason I had Mary come up and talk this morning is that exception is the Roman Catholic Church. And I'll explain that as we go on here. The difference is uh, you're not one in Christ with other Christians unless you have their weekly offerings of Jesus on a weekly basis being sacrificed over and over again. Let me stop and remind you of something. Moses, go strike the rock. It'll bring forth water. It was a picture of Jesus being struck Okay, one time. And then they were thirsty again. Oh, they're thirsty again. Moses, this time I want you to go to the rock, but I don't want you to strike it. I want you to speak to it. And now we have the picture coming into view here. And my point is simply this. Once Jesus has been crucified one time, now we have one mediator. This is an important point. One mediator between God and God in heaven and he never needs to be stricken again and so he blew the picture by striking the rock twice as you look at the book of hebrews paul being jewish is going through all the customs and traditions of judaism and he in one case he's explaining that in the old testament you had to be a levi in order to be a priest okay? Um, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And um, not only that, but you couldn't be a priest and a king at the same time. You could be one or the other, but you couldn't be both. Well, what he's doing here, what Paul is doing, he's trying to explain to these new Hebrew believers what happened and what changed and why they're, no longer is a continual sacrifice being made on a daily basis. The Jews sacrificed on a daily basis for various things. And um, what he's explaining here, for example, is, well, Jesus can't be the Messiah. He's from the tribe of Judah. And Paul would have to go on to explain, well, no, he's after the lineage of Melchizedek who was a king and a priest over a city called Salem, which later became to be known as Jerusalem. So we know in Psalm 110 that he is a priest, not after the order of the Levitical priesthood. That's why he's got to explain it here in Hebrews. But he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest, and he says he has no beginning and no end. He had no genealogy. It could only be one person. We call it a Christophanes. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Because he had no beginning and he will have no end. Good place for an amen. So, but it's got to be explained. If, I mean, if you're a Jew, you just can't. Well, it can't be Jesus. He's from the tribe of Judah. So what will Paul do? Well, he just explains it to him. Now he's going to explain. Um, what a high priest would do in chapter uh, 10 Um, Paul used the Jewish continual offering by the priest so in the the Old Testament they would have the priest they were the mediator between God and man they made the intercession what the Catholic church simply did was copied it and made it Christian. In other words, the custom of the priesthood, where you now have only a priest can be your mediator. And how does he mediate between you and God? Well, um, through what we call the Eucharist. And I'm gonna pull that up here real quick, give the definition of it. And the Eucharist is different from where any born-again Christian church would have communion. Jesus said, I will not drink the fruit of the vine again with you until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, but I want you to do this in remembrance of me. So every time we have communion, we come together with one mind. We're to examine our hearts, see if there's things that we need to make right before the Lord, but we're all one in Christ. Not so in Roman Catholicism. There they adopted a lot of the practices from the Old Testament. And I'm pulling this from what Mary was talking about this morning. Um, If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ but says that he's uh, only therein as a sign or a figure or we would use the terminology do this in remembrance of me and um, he said if you believe that and it's not a priest who's actually taking the wafer and actually sacrificing again the Lord. And that's what happens when you uh, are involved with the Eucharist. It is not the same. They are different. You have to have a priest to intercede for you to transform that bread into the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we have here is if you teach otherwise... And if you're in Hebrews, go to Hebrews chapter 9 at this point. Because now, and look at verses 9 through 12. And he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. Well, what was the first? The Levitical priesthood, that only a priest could perform. Now he's explaining to the Hebrews In verse 10, but that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus. And notice what it says, once for all. And I can't emphasize this enough. And then it goes on to say, every priest standing ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered, and I have this underline, and I'll ask you to do the same thing, one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God. What I want to emphasize here is the idea of this happening once and once only. Another man made teaching besides this, taught in scripture, is the doctrine of what we call the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You'll find it if you're taking notes in the book of Revelation chapter three to the church of Ephesus. And he's telling them all the good things they were doing. And he said, especially that you do not hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now those are two Latin words, Nico and laity. And Nico is over, and laity, well, you're Laity. In other words, having people over you. And um, they started out well, but by the time they get to Pergamus, he says to Pergamus, this I have this against you, because you hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That is the establishment of a hierarchy over the church. As it pertains to Roman Catholicism, you start with the pope. His, he is infallible. If he says something that's contrary to the scriptures, his word trumps it. Then you have cardinals. Then you have priests. And then you have whatever. But my point that I'm making here, Jesus says, and these are the things that I hate. What does he hate? This idea of a hierarchy. Or some person that isn't, Jesus himself that we do just in remembrance of. No, we have an actual man um, who's no different than you or me that is a mediator. And if you teach anything other than what they teach, the last thing that I didn't put in here, if anybody tells you what I'm telling you this morning, let that person be anathema. How's that for a word? You know what it means? Eternally damned. Damned. If you don't teach this, that Jesus Christ, the priest, and uh, a trans they call it transubstantiation, if you teach anything other than that, then let that person be anathema. And so when I say that um, the study this morning is primarily about unity as born-again believer coming together and making the main thing the main thing, Remembering that Jesus died on a cross for us. How many times? One time. Does that ever have to happen again? Am I anybody special that turns its, um, by saying magical words, changes it into the body and body of Christ? No, you just think it through. You tell a lie long enough, and over the years, you can establish what's called tradition. How's that for a, uh, uh, No, I didn't watch Fiddle on the Roof last night. But it could get so deeply ingrained. That's why I asked Mary to come up here. She was a really good little Catholic girl. And um, she wanted to do everything the right way. And to their credit, let me just switch gears here a little bit. I asked Mary to give them the due that the scriptures does to the church of Thyatira, which I believe is the Roman Catholic Church. He says, this you have. You have love, works, good deeds, and he commends them for all those things. And he says, and the last, the love, is more than the first. And so they're the ones responsible for the orphanages, the hospitals, and uh, the Lord commends them for that. But then he says, nevertheless, unless you repent of um, the spiritual um, doctrine of Jezebel. Well, who was Jezebel? Well, she's the one who introduced to King Ahab Baal worship in Israel. She took Baal worship from where she was from, Sidon, and entered it into Israel, and that's where you have the big shootout with the 400 prophets of Baal and Elijah, On Mount Carmel. It had infiltrated Judaism. And the Lord says, unless you repent of that false teaching, um, I'm going to cast you into uh, basically the great tribulation. So the title of the message this morning is The One World Religion. To the Church of Philadelphia, on the other hand, in chapter 3, he says... You're little in strength, but you've kept my word. And because you've kept my word, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the entire world. Now what hour of trial besides the flood past tense is going to affect the entire world? The answer is the rapture. And he says, because... Uh, You kept the word, that's what Bible studies are all about. I'm going to keep you, and I'm going to take you out of that um, period of time. So God's word teaches just the opposite. Uh, Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and look at verses four and five. And I want to get into another false doctrine uh, in Roman Catholicism. And that has to do with the false teaching of celibacy or being celibate. And um, in order to be a priest, to be a nun, uh, you have to take this vow, which means you're not allowed to marry And I want you to know that the Bible teaches the exact opposite of this. So in 1 Corinthians 9, verse um, 5, he says, Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? As do also the apostles? What does that tell us? The apostles were married. And the brother, brothers of our Lord, they were married. And Peter. Well, Jesus healed Peter's mother. What's your point, Dwight? None of these guys except Paul had taken the vow of being celibate. And I would say that it was a gift and I would also say that 95% 95 do not have the gift of being celibate. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? (laughs) So, this has caused them to do what this leads to and I gotta find my what this has led to in the world is the tragedy of um, well I'll just I'm I'm quoting from CNN right now Catholic clergy and um, um, well I'll just read it members of the the Catholic clergy, and France sexual abuse have estimated that 216,000 minors over the past seven decades, according to a damning report published Tuesday that said the church had prioritized protection of the institution over victims who were urged to stay silent. The number of abused minors rises to an estimated 330,000 when including victims of people who were members of the clergy but had other links with the church such as Catholic schools and youth programs. Between 2,900 and 3,200 abusers were estimated to have worked in French Catholic Church between 1950 and 2020. Uh, out of a total of 115,000 priests and other clergy. I just picked one country, okay? And what happens when you have these natural hormonal drives, you love the Lord, but you're told in order to serve the Lord to be a priest or a nun, that you have to take this vow. I'll tell you what happens. They break that vow. And what has has cost them over the years is settlements, and this is just from France, over two billion dollars in settlements plus therapy for the victims and the attorneys. In other words, we're talking sexual abuse. Who put that heavy stone upon them? The hierarchy in the Roman Catholic Church. And everybody here knows what I'm talking about. And uh, it's rampant around the country. I mean, literally, around the world Um, because they're not allowed to. They love the Lord and they say, well, if this is what I gotta do, so now they're doing these things behind closed doors. I could name several popes that have kids and um, that's a whole other, I don't wanna get too sidetracked here. All that to bring us to the one world religion. The true church will be taken out at the rapture. What is going to be left behind is a lot of churches that are still gonna have people showing up on Sunday morning. And um, I know that one of them is going to be the Roman Catholic Church because of where this world religion, one world religion, is headquartered. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. 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 Chapter 17, and let me just explain what, ha- what happens here. My friends, I believe the hour is so late and that the Lord really, really, really could come. Immediately after the Lord comes, the restraining force, well, what's the restraining force? Well, it's you guys that are standing up and saying, um, don't take the vaccine. It's deadly, and don't be afraid to talk about people and work it into a Bible study. I had a guy come over and fix my furnace uh, this week, and um, I asked him if he got the jab. He said no, we ended up talking for an hour, sent him home with uh, Agenda Two, God of Wonders, and invited him to church this morning, and I hope he's here, Um, but he was wide open because he had all these questions. And uh, we're praying for him. So as soon as the rapture takes place, the Bible teaches that for the first three and a half years, there will be a one world religion, all religions. Our current pope is a globalist. And uh, you can do your own homework on that. But after three and a half years, remember the Antichrist is ruling, with 10 other kings, but he's over these 10 other kings. After three and a half years of this one world religion, we read in verse 16 of chapter 17, and the 10 horns which you saw on the beast, they will hate the harlot. Well, who is the harlot? Um, If you go back to verse three, It says that John was carried away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names and blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. By the way, those are the colors of cardinals in um, in Roman Catholic Church adorned with gold and precious stones, pearls, having in her hand a cup full of abominations and the filthiness of a fornication. And on her forehead was a name that was written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw it, I was marveled and I was amazed. Why was John so amazed? Because this was supposed to be the church. And she's drunk with the martyrs of real Christians who knew their Bible and saying Martin Luther was the one who started reading his Bible. You're not supposed to read your Bible if you're Roman Catholic. And then we read that in verse 16, after three and a half years, then the ten horns which you saw on the beast they will hate the harlot why does the antichrist hate the harlot because it's this one thing that satan has always desired from the beginning was to be the one and truly and only form of worship now we got two things going on we got part of the world worshiping God let's just use the word God doesn't matter which God as long as you worship God But it tells us here where this religion is located. They hate her because he's not receiving all the worship. Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the word of God is fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Question. What city reigned over the kings of the earth in the time of John in 96 AD? Answer Rome. So the headquarters of this one world um, religion will meet its end, and for the next three and a half years, um, the Antichrist will rule. We're going to close this up this morning because I realize it's a pretty Heavy Bible study that's um, going on. Definitely drawing lines in the sand. Um, Definitely have now have the title anathema attached to my name. And um, so be it. If you turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter twenty-six, this is what the guys were talking about in men's prayer yesterday. And might I just say this, the hour is late. And the Lord says, when you see these things begin to happen, look up, redemption draws nigh. And then he goes on to say, um, as you see them, make sure that you stay in fellowship and do it all the more. There's a war going on right now for people's souls. So as we see all these things coming, what does the Bible tell us to do? not forsake the assembling of yourselves together and do it even more because you're gonna need it even more. So in men's prayer, we read through the Bible and we happened to be in Isaiah yesterday and um, the guys kept coming, it came up a lot in chapter 26, verse 20. And I wanna leave you with encouragement and hope even in light of what is happening in the world today. Remember what he said to Philadelphia? I'm gonna keep you from that hour of trial that's gonna come on the whole world. And here it's recorded in Isaiah 26, verse 20. He says, come my people, enter your chambers. That makes me think of John 14. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. So. I want you to enter enter your chambers and I want you to shut your doors behind you and hide yourself as it was for a little moment, just a little period of time. That period of time is seven years until the indignation is past. This is another word for the tribulation. So when the rapture happens, we're taken up, put in our chambers and we're there until. Until is a big word here until the tribulation is past, There are many different names for the tribulation. Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus said, a time that has never been, nor will ever be again, Daniel's 70th week. Why? For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Um, Why do you read that one, Dwight? Because you're not going to be around when the Great Tribulation is taking place. And that should leave us with this hope. Turn to chapter 25, which is before it. All of 25 really is about the kingdom age and uh, draw your attention to verses eight and nine. So now we're through the tribulation period and it's talking about the kingdom age when we return with the Lord and he judges the nations according to Matthew 25. Verse eight says he will swallow up death forever and the Lord will reign, wipe away tears from all faces the rebuke of his people, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So the good news is we know how the book ends. And the last verse that I'm gonna share with you this morning happens to be one of my favorite. In the midst of the storm, we have Isaiah 26, verse three, that says, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of everything that's going on, we need to be informed. We need to know what's happening. But having said that, We're told here you can have perfect peace provided that you keep your eyes stayed on the Lord instead of the problem. Good place to end? Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we see this one world religion unfolding, some of the forms that it's going to take Uh, Lord, help us never get to that place where the things we read about that you want to be examples for us where we get caught up with murmuring and complaining and thinking, oh, it's just another Bible study. Help us realize that your word is life and they feed us, it satisfies our soul, it gives us hope, and best of all, you tell us how it all turns out. In the meantime, Lord, um, we we pray for boldness um, to take a stand and to, to speak your word in truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.